Here we are again, a month post-Ida, another hurricane, another failure of infrastructure. Confession. I wasn't born in Louisiana. My people aren't from here. So it feels extra important that I listen, that I listen to the people who were here before me and the people before them. And before them, the land, the water. I walk out my door to the river and listen to the sound of the waves lap up against the rocks at the end of the world where the industrial canal feeds into the Mississippi. If you cross over the industrial canal, you're in the Lower Ninth Ward where John Taylor grew up. John is an artist and a naturalist and a lifelong resident of the Lower Nine. And if you keep on going downriver out of town, past some petrochemical plants, you arrive at Monique Verdan's studio. Monique is an artist here on her ancestral lands, the land of the Homa people. In previous episodes in this series, a series exploring subsidence and evictions in New Orleans, we've talked about the plight of landlords and tenants, an already fraught relationship exacerbated by the pandemic. And for this episode, I want to address environmental eviction. When the land is no longer habitable and people are forced to move. But what causes this change? I talked to John and Monique for their perspective. This is the Antenna Signals Podcast, a podcast exploring the people and ideas that flow into and out of New Orleans. I'm Marie Lovejoy. We're on episode four of our series on evictions and subsidence. So this is Sync, episode four. It belongs to you. Here's Monique. My family, I mean, environmental eviction, essentially my Homa family was pushed to the ends of the bayous because of Swamp Acts and Indian Removal Acts in the 1800s. And then when fur trapping and oil and gas became popular and desired in the wetlands of South Louisiana, their lands were stolen from them and they were essentially kicked off of them. And my grandparents made a migration in the 1940s to St. Bernard as my grandmother would say, to find a better life because they were just barely getting by and just kept going deeper into debt and had no land. And then a couple years after they bought their little piece of property, there was a plant a processing facility for oil and gas that was put in less than four city blocks from where our family land is, where my studio and wild garden grows. And when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, my grandmother's home, our family home filled up with 11 feet of water. Our family still has that land, but I'm in my middle ages now. And to think about growing old in South Louisiana and to (laughs) know a little too much about land loss and 
infrastructure, like one of the biggest concrete levy systems in the world, the Chalmette Loop, as the Army Corps calls it, built post-Katrina to protect us. But there have been revelations that have come since the completion that, you know, make me not feel so safe. The sheet metal that they pounded into the earth was not coated with that special paint to make it not rust. And the ground (laughs) beneath our feet is like pudding soil (laughs) and clay. So, you know, when the levee breaks again, which it will because levees are man-made and as this land is shifting, the levees are shifting with it. I question, do I stay Do I figure out some sort of retreat and return or do I let go of my my home place, which has always been a safe place for me, a very sacred spot on the planet where I've always found a sense of home. After Hurricane Katrina, I really thought that this place was done. Everything was covered in just that gray weird film of flood and it smelled like death to me you know it's been what 16 years now since hurricane katrina (sighs) i mean we may be slowly watching this place transform into something that may not be habitable in my lifetime but until that time, I feel like I have a responsibility to my grandmother. We are experiencing more intense storms. The cycle is unpredictable. The weather is wild. We can have a south wind blow a little too long, a little too hard, and there's water coming up and covering roads. And we're kind of in it. As my grandmother would say, can't stop dancing in the middle of the dance and the climate crisis dance. The music's been playing for a while and now we're in it. How do you decide that you're gonna leave home? And for those at the ends of the bayous who have always been able to find a sense of sovereignty because there is access to the natural resources, which brings food security, that has meant everything for the Homa, for the indigenous peoples of the Delta, and for all those immigrants who have come since and those who were brought against their will to this foreign place the richness of this powerpoint on the planet has provided survival and so i question if communities are being moved away from what literally feeds them not only in body but in mind and spirit because the bayou side for my family is a place of gatherings it's a place of business it is a hub of family and community and support land ownership provides access to a house but also to a place where you can grow your garden and your neighbor's ownership if my neighbor says it's okay to build a canal then that's going to affect me there's lots of canals that are affecting me now
In the lower ninth ward, there's a triangular-shaped body of water called the Bayou Bienvenue Wetland Triangle. Most folks just call it the triangle. It makes up 40 acres of the almost 30,000-acre central wetland system, a section of swamp, freshwater marsh, and bottomland hardwood forests. These forests provided nearby residents with protection from storms, access to the natural world, and a place to hunt, trap, and gather food. They did this really well until we started messing with it. When John Taylor was growing up in the mid-20th century, he and his brother could boat out into the triangle without a paddle. They just pulled themselves along by the cypress trees. And while John doesn't consider himself an environmentalist, he spent his life returning to this body of water in care of it. I went to go visit John at his home in the Lower Nine. I've been born and raised in the Snipe Wall, so I'm used to weird people. <laughs> And the best friends of mine are wild animals. I'd rather be in the woods than to be around people. As animals concerned, we're supposed to be the most sophisticated animal God ever made. But we're more trouble to ourselves than anything else. A frog gonna be a frog, a cat gonna be a cat, but human beings try to be everything but what they are. I don't take environmentalists as a label. I take it as a way of life. Been like that all my life, you know, fish, hunt. I caught bullfrog for five dollars a piece. Then we used to catch crawfish in the drainage canals, but they don't have crawfish in drainage canals no more. I caught turtles, catch neutrals, muskrat, manks, and otters. I would catch them and trap them and stretch them and sell it to the trappers. The hides was dollar fifty a piece. Sell them too, people eat them. Those animals we killed wasn't just what they for, because they ate the meat. <laughs> so one time I was making more money than my daddy, going in the swamps and catching frogs. And he had out there working his butt off. He had two trucks and he would do the cleaning up for all swagman stores. I mean, they even had wild grasses that we would go along the lever and pull and mix it with mustard green. They were called pepper grass. Well, everybody would go up to Florida Avenue by the railroad track and pick blackberries in the season. It was free. It was free, good, clean food. We didn't have the rules and regulations that we have now. To walk from my house and go back there every day. I don't know. It's, it is strange, and we're so bad about it. I'm going to feel if I get too old and I can't go there anymore. And where do you go? The place we finna go when we leave here. You know, sit, look. Should we go there now? You the boss. You tell me where to go. In the 1960s, the Army Corps of Engineers completed the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, or MRGO, a shipping channel providing watercraft access to the Gulf of Mexico. The MRGO eroded the land around it, removing storm protection. Saltwater filled formerly freshwater patches. All those cypress trees that John and his brother paddled by in the triangle, the salt water killed them all. I have to check something right quick. Let's see. What are you checking? I'm checking. 
checking the blackberry patch. This is blackberries. See all the stickers on them? Mm -hmm. But they're not blooming yet. So this whole this whole area that we're looking at right here, this was all all these little we're looking at this this body of water and there's all of these stumps. The stumps is what's left of the cypress trees that died out in here. When the tide drops down, this is a tidal swamp now. See what's happening? You could come here sometime and all this then went down some more and you would see all the stumps. You don't see all of them yet. You know, you will see all of them. That water drops down, that tide drop. You'll see all them stumps and you'll realize how I many. In fact, well, that, that picture over here show how it used to look. That's a, that's a picture from the Louisiana archives. And that's how this thing used to look. That's how close these cypress trees was together. That's how huge these cypress trees was. This is what it looked like when you were a child? Yep, yep. This is a knee. That's the root of a cypress. It goes down to stabilize the tree, and parts of it comes out to get oxygen from the air without being underwater. Now, the shape of this tree, it's made like a bell. It's narrow at the top, come down and come wide to balance itself in the slushy mud. And all the roots is tied together under that water. That's why they don't blow over and flip over. They roots it like this, holding hands. But they'll float away if they wasn't holding hands. And then the man roots go down deeper, deeper, until they get through the mud to a hard enough soil to keep it from floating away. And nature made it that way. This is not man work. So when nature makes something and man come in there and try to change it, he destroyed, he cannot replace it because he don't know exactly how it was made. Everything is gone, everything is gone. They had more trees, more everything. We planted 500 cypress trees, right? And when they planted them, they still had salt water in it. And only one is alive right now. That's the only one. Oh, that's what I call it. It survived and the rest of them died. Looking good, he looking good though. Yep. Oh, there. It made it through the whole hootin' kabootin'. See the flowers? That's the water. They're blooming now. Well, the wind blows them around, they float. If the wind changes, they might go over that away. Water hyacinth would take over all the water. And you know what you would see? A sea of people. You can't see no water. You just see the top of the water hyacinth and all the water hyacinth blooms. So, I mean, it is beautiful. You want to see one close? Sure. Let me put this in my pocket because I don't think the phone can swim. What are you going to do? I'm going to get you a flower. You can't do it because you'll end up down there on your head because there's a bunch of rocks and some of them will move. These rocks was put here after Katrina. See, I know what to do. If they start moving, all I got to do is just rail back and lay down like I'm laying down on my back. There you go. This is the water has some flower blooming. You want this? Yeah, I do. No, okay. Now you want a bigger one to go down from the step and get a bigger one. No, no, platform. I like this one's perfect. But imagine sometime this year, when it's midsummer, all of this will be full of these. This is the water has some flower. It's light, light purple, and it's dark purple with a golden paint prop on each leaf. You'd have to see it to believe it. And this is not fertilized by man, not saved by man. It's known to make it through the rough shit, you know? Well, this is the triangle. 
what people don't realize, this thing here, before they built the sewer treatment plant in the dump, this thing was hooked to the part that goes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. It's called a central wetland system. Yeah, the swamps was all the way to St. Bernard Parish, but they got the sewer treatment plants, East Bank's treatment plant, in the middle of the swamp here. And then next to it, it has a landfill that they closed down because they caught them dumping hazardous material, but nobody ever did anything with it since. That's why it looks like a triangle, because of the sewer treatment plants next to it. Other side of that bridge is the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. Anything on this side of that bridge is the intercoastal waterways. Remember when the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet was built? It was built right after Bessie. You know what it was built for, really? It was built for the ships to get in. See, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet was a shortcut to get into the Industrial Canal. So how did things change after the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet was built? Well, they were saying just what was going to happen if the storm blew water up the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, it was going to flood the city, and that's what it did. If it wouldn't have been there, it couldn't flood the city. It put too much pressure on the Industrial Canal, and the Industrial Canal levees couldn't take the pressure, so they boisted. And after that, they put a concrete level there. And within two months, it was cracking. It's cracking now. So the taxpayer money was wasted again, so they're gonna have to figure out a way to do something. The intercoastal canal came into the industrial canal. It was dug through the marshland, and they actually finished it when we first had our flood. And that was Hurricane Bessie in 1965. When it was being dug, people made a complaint that what would happen if a storm was slowed down into the mouth of the Mississippi River Guard outlet and start pushing water in. And that's exactly what happened in Katrina. And the Industrial Canal, they was working on strengthening the levees, and they had parts that was weak because they was working on them. And just bust the levee in the weakest spot, and it came right over on us. And people lost their homes. It, it, it's important, you know, it's very important. You see, if it's wide open, it's got water in it, it protects you from a hurricane. You know why? Water cuts hurricane from intensifying. Because it's cold, it's cool. A hurricane feeds off of warmness and it cuts it down, you know. So all this wetlands, it was actually a buffer making a hurricane weaken. See, when a hurricane hit land and it hit hit trees and stuff like that, it start losing its print. So if the wetlands got trees around it, it cuts this hurricane down. Art has been a vehicle to share story that has changed my life and made me tune in to what's beneath my feet or <laughs> or the water in a way that I wasn't expecting. When I was 18 years old and I first was working with a 35 millimeter film camera to put a frame around my reality that was, you know, surrounding me and then ask the question of like, well, why is that oak tree dead on the land where my grandmother was born? <laughs> And then to put together the pieces of like, oh, canals, saltwater intrusion, land loss, 
corporations, pipeline canals, very wealthy people who own this land that is actually my ancestral land where my grandfather's buried, you know, that's going underwater thanks to their corporate interest. The 10,000 plus miles of navigation and pipeline extraction canals that were dredged through the marshes exacerbated that natural subsidence that's always happening here in the Delta. Geologically speaking, we're on baby land. But what took Mother Nature between five and 8,000 years to create, it's taken man all the way back to when the colonizers first came in and started to build the levee systems for the plantation economy. And that has just been continued and perpetuated here. So many decisions that get made are made on behalf of industry. If it was profitable to make money off, everybody be out here trying to get a piece of the rock. Okay, just say like this. Suppose rich guys get in a boat and they want to go to the other side to see what's happening. Then all of a sudden a big gush of oil shoots up. Oh, you talking about people coming. There's oil under them damn waters, boy. They have an oil rig three, four, five stories high. And they're trying to get that oil out because it's money. They're always doing things for the profit of the state and the city, the people that's in a political position that they can do anything about don't give a damn. If they don't make no money off it, they say, I guess they say, why fool with it? This place is running off of a plantation society and mentality. And it looks different because where the plantations were, the petrochemical plants are. But before we had oil and gas, that's all we had here was sugarcane. And so I think that when oil came in, it provided resources. And I think that our, I think that, I don't think that anybody knew where oil would take us. And I, am and have been trying to raise awareness about, you know, we're losing land at one of the fastest rates in the world, sea levels rising. When I think about the many storms that I've lived through in my life, I'm not so worried about the water. I'm not so worried about the land sinking anymore. But I am very, very concerned about the toxic gamble that our politicians have allowed corporate interests to make. And that could evict us all, you know? If the refinery in Chalmette blows up, we're gonna have some problems, <laughs> you know? Again, not laughing because it's funny, just because that's, as my grandmother would say, for real. That, that is a very real gamble. Louisiana was founded upon the company of John Law. It's always been about corporate interest here since the time of the late 1600s when the colonizers sailed in. And this place is still ruled by the corporations. And I think the fact that, yes, we're faced with rising water 
We're faced with rising taxes. <laughs> We're faced with air quality that is toxic and a industrial system and web of pipelines that make us all vulnerable. Humanity has just been really short-sighted and doubled down on dinosaur juice because of convenience and power. South Louisiana has played a sacrificial role, especially when we're talking about the United States, but I think on a planetary scale. We have a lot to teach and a lot to learn, and we're in this weird situation of having these corporations and having oil and gas <laughs> being still protected. Their best interest are always in the forefront of politicians' minds, and they can justify that with jobs. But the flip side of that is that, I mean, look at Louisiana. We're at the bottom of the list of everything that should be good. The amount of wealth that comes through here, we should have good education and good health care, and we don't. I don't think oil and gas is going to save us. And... I think it's really complicated when we talk about coastal restoration and the fact that resources for the restoration of South Louisiana are dependent upon deep water oil and gas being extracted into the infinite future. And that's tied to these resources coming from the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act. And the only reason why we have real dollars to go towards real restoration projects right now is because of the BP Deepwater Horizon explosion for 87 days in 2010. There was just this gushing of oil coming out of this hole that the company had made in the earth. And then they were like, oops, we can't stop that. I don't think any man wakes up in the morning or woman and says, you know, I'm really excited to go to work today and work in one of those refineries. But if we don't have another opportunity for folks to be able to literally feed themselves, then we're going to have people who are going to defend and work for and suck it up and go inside of the plants because they have families at home and they got to feed their babies. If we don't have oil and gas here in South Louisiana, what do we have? Tourism? COVID really showed us how strong that economy is. The sustainability of that when we talk about people being evicted and not being able to afford to even participate in the urban center anymore. We can look at the end of the road where wealthy people want to go to these vulnerable places to have access. But we can also look at the colonial quarters of so-called New Orleans, which we know is really Bulbuncha, a place of many tongues. The inside of the city center is a vulnerable place that is desired and is being taken over. And folks who have been born and raised and lived here their entire lives are foreigners in their own land. 
And to see that happen in such a short amount of time, I mean, really my window, I feel like is the last 20 years. With every storm, another family maybe moves a little bit further and then a little bit further. And my ancestors, my grandmother and grandfather left the Yakni Shudo in Terrebonne Lafouche Parish in the 1940s to come to St. Bernard Parish, which as the crow flies is not that far, but in the 1940s, it was very far away from home. And by making that move, my grandfather was able to find work. They were eventually able to buy a little piece of land. They were eventually able to vote. Their kids were allowed to go to school. And it wasn't until the civil rights movement that the Native children in Terrebonne and Lafouche Parish were allowed to go to public schools. So those legacies of discrimination have left wounds and have not allowed people to to have voice in the decision-making process. And I think with each disaster, decisions get made really rapidly. So tell me what we're walking up on here. Yeah, this is my this is a property where I was born and raised in. This thing I planted with my own hands. What is it? A Spanish oak tree. I didn't think it was gonna get that large in my lifetime. They don't grow fast, fast, fast. But they can get large, large, large when they do get big. It was actually unique to live down here because it was different. It was like a city in another city, the lower night was. And it was a high one of the highest places in this city that black people owned the houses. Even the people that was renting was renting from a black landlord. You know, uptown it wasn't that way. Well, it's all the time it's not subsiding. It's sea level rising, and it feels like it's, you're sinking, but the things around you are coming up. The sea level is coming up and flooding out. All this has to do with the way we live. And I don't expect anyone to change the way they live completely. We got emissions that coming from your car causing carbon dioxide and the trees catching hell trying to filter all that shit. Trees are our filters. Environmentally, we must realize that the things that we are destroying, we need. The earth itself, you know, everything is out of whack. It was all happening then, but it was happening slow. That easy for us to correct it. But it's going to go so far, it's not going to be that easy. We can't keep digging big holes and getting some soil and building a levee. When you build a levee, then there's a big hole. Well, how are you going to fill it up if you took stuff out of it to use? Where are you going to get the stuff to fill it back up? I did the conservation stuff. I took care of the place. I talked to people about it even before I got involved with nonprofits. Gam wanted to see that you are doing the proper way of hunting and fishing. You're not messing up anything. You're going by the rules. You're not catching a fish that's too small. You're not catching a fish that's out of season. You give them a chance to reproduce and get babies first before you fool with them. I didn't overfish things because I could sell it. I didn't take a little bitty fish and I know that little bitty fish have to grow up. That little bitty fish can lay thousands of eggs when they get grown and that's putting more fish in the water. Two things they don't want you to do. They don't want you to take the little ones 
and they don't want you to take the big ones because the big ones are the egg layers. They got thousands of eggs in them. And, and the little ones, they grow up to do the same thing. They become the, the ones they come from. I, when I come up, the, the voices thing, that ever was done to me. I was told that I was black and I could never be a game warden. And that hurt me. And every time I mentioned it, tears come to my eyes. So I said, okay, I can't, I can't never be a game warden on paper, but I can do what I can do for the environment myself. They said, one man don't count. Yes, it do. That's one man more than you had before. So now I'm an old man. So, so I volunteered to do what I can do for the environment without being a game warden. What old goldfish, you saw it? You didn't see it jump? No, I a didn't. A big one jump. Yep. Being overwhelmed by the injustice has educated me in a way that I can appreciate on a planetary scale and my relationship with the Mississippi River has grown deeper and just been wowed by that force of nature. And then also, I'm like, oh yeah, we all come from the ocean. It's all about the ocean. If we're talking about climate and the ultimate climate regulator is the ocean. So nature has its own intelligence if we're not trying to control. If we respect and try to live in collaboration and balance, there is enough for everyone. We've engineered ourselves into this problem, and now we're wanting to engineer ourselves out of it. And an example of that being these sediment and freshwater diversions that they know that they can't restore the wetlands if you don't reintroduce freshwater and sediment. So there's the Mid-Barataria sediment diversion, and then there's also the Breton Sound. They're going to put in south of Bulbuncha in Plaquemines Parish, which one will be on the east bank of the river and one will be on the west bank of the river. And the one on the east bank of the river will be pushing fresh water and sediment into St. Bernard Parish, just south of where my family property is. And they're being paid for by BP Deepwater Horizon fines. This has never been done before. Fishermen are freaking out because their fishing grounds are going to be decimated. You know, and the fishermen are saying not only is the fresh water going to ruin their fishing grounds, but also they question the quality of the fresh water that will be pushed into these estuaries because every summer there are these huge algal blooms that happen at the mouth of the Mississippi River, which takes all of the oxygen out of the water column and kills everything, which creates the dead zone. So the fishermen are now saying, hey, 
we don't want that water going into our estuaries. And then also, of course, for oyster fishermen, they're concerned that the amount of fresh water is just going to totally kill those oyster beds. So again, these are policy decisions that are affecting communities at the ends of the bayous in the name of the betterment for the greater community at large. But many scientists have said that we should be putting smaller diversions where we have actually healthy wetlands that can be restored further upriver. So at the southern end of the Mississippi, the real long-term benefits are questioned. We may be out of time. So that's the debate that's out there. And I don't know what the right answer is, but I also do recognize that the land is going. This place never looked bad like this before when I was running it. Never was a piece of paper on the ground, the grass stayed cut, and everything. I was out there every day, eight hours, so if people wanted to ask questions about it, I was out here. John Taylor, many years ago, I heard him speak, and he said, you may never go out there to the wetlands, but it belongs to you. It belongs to all of us. This river delta is quote-unquote owned (laughs) by Shell Oil, Chevron, Apache, Louisiana Land, all of these corporations. But it belongs to us. This is a place where water is coming to be purified and is going out into the oceans of the world. It belongs to all of the living things. And recognizing that the river has their own rights that we have to respect. That's part of nature. You keep destroying the things that's part of nature. See, we're worrying about going to another planet. We can't take care of the one we own. How we define eviction can come in many different forms that people aren't saying that's an eviction. To think back a hundred plus years or so ago, you're having land taken from folks using policy. If we're going to talk about coastal restoration, then we have to talk about the Swamp Acts. As the United States was making its great expansion, the Swamp Acts and the Indian Removal Act were huge moves that have defined everything that has come since. We have to talk about how this waterland, land water was violated and how the perpetrators have a responsibility and how far back we go with that. We could go way back. But if we just look at the 20th century and all of those corporations that came in and carved up the land and took out the stuff and left behind their waste pits, we could start there. Because they're still making plenty money. A place like the Mississippi River Delta, the Gulf of Mexico is needing fresh waters of the so-called United States. And that watershed, who owns that? 
in this moment where we're witnessing land loss and the side effects of man's manipulation for so-called progress, which has come with the consequence of Cancer Alley and the dead zone. <laughs> you know, it's I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's just fast forward, you have people who are living at the ends of the bayous, and they're not able to afford flood insurance. They don't have the resources to keep dealing with the cycles of storms. They're having to leave their livelihoods living off of the waters behind and retreating to inside levee protection. That's an eviction. Well, a lot of folks at the ends of the bayous are choosing to leave if they can. Some are never going to leave. What's curious to me is as these territories become more vulnerable, there has been this recognition of access to natural resources. So what do you want to see happen? Well, I don't think it would ever be developed, but clean it up, make it accessible for people to come look, make it out a place where people can bring their kayak and kayak around it. Don't take the alligators out because that's their place. See if I could afford to buy a place with this much water in it. Let me plant what I want to plant in it, more trees, and make it out of real swamp, and I can control it because it's not city, state, or federal property. I'm thinking about this idea of property ownership for stewardship. Hmm. And make it look like it's supposed to look. Right, right. Not necessarily to make money off of it. No, recondition. Make it well so it can come out of the hospital. Something is stopping it from being what it's supposed to be. You find that and get rid of that and fertilize everything and make a beautiful place. Oh, 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 there he is. There he is. The alligator. See him? Is it that thing that's right close to us here? No, it's bouncing up and down, look like a brown stick. See him? That's a baby alligator. Not baby, but big enough. You see the tip end of his mouth. That's his eyes, which you see sticking up. He's playing possum. He don't want to swim to all this to get to here. Yep. How did you spot that to be a gator and not just one of these other sticks out here? And the sticks don't have eyeballs and it don't move. You see how the rest of his body popping up all the way to the end? Uh-huh. His tail is under the water. That's how he's maneuvering. Now you see him turning now? Yep. Look, 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 look at the eyes moving. I want this place. Ever since they started putting flags in the ground and claiming the land and waters for God and country, we've been under this illusion that we're in control. And as much as the nature reminds us that we're not, as soon as the disaster strike is over and things start to look like they're back to normal, whatever that means, because it never gets back, we're always in flux. People have short memories and so we forget that 
The nature has its own intelligence here that we must respect in order to really adapt. I'd like to end this episode with a land acknowledgement. These are Monique's words, publicly installed on a plaque on Norman C. Francis Parkway in New Orleans. There would be no land to acknowledge upon which you now rest if it were not for the Mississippi River. Indigenous peoples have respected this ever-shifting fluid state at the end of one of the world's largest river systems, inhabiting the high grounds along the bayous of Bulbancha for centuries, as long as there has been land in these territories. Bulbancha, place of many tongues, as the Chata call it, a place of many languages, known better as the Global Port City, rebranded as New Orleans. Ancestral and current indigenous stewards of these lands and waters are Chata, Chirimacha, Homa, Biloxi, Washa, Chawasha, Bayugula, Chapatulis, Tunica, Atacapa, Ishtak, Cado, Naches, Akolapisa, Tensa, and other nations, and all those nations that were erased or assimilated before colonial records had a chance to document their existence. The Atacapa Ishak called these high grounds, where a crossroad of waterways provided access to sites of sacred trade and ceremony, the big village, Nun Ush a territory of biological and cultural diversity where water travels through, looking to be purified as it makes its water cycle journey back to the sea or skies. This place is also where many people from Senegambia, the Blight of Benin, Blight of Biafra, and West Central Africa and other African nations were brought against their will, enslaved upon these lands a place where immigrants and indigenous peoples from around the world have found and continue to find themselves due to desires for a better life or non-negotiable destinies in this complicated and infinitely beautiful power point on the planet known as the Lower Mississippi River Delta. Thank you so much to Monique Verdan and John Taylor. Shana Griffin and Shay Shackelford provided editorial support. This piece was produced by Marie Lovejoy. Music in this episode is by Circus Marcus, Seville Del Mar, Aaron Zem, and Neil Cross. You can help us keep creating this kind of content by supporting Antenna's work at antenna.works backslash donate. This podcast is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Louisiana Division of the Arts, Arts Council New Orleans, the Rosemary Foundation, Morris Ajme Architects, and most importantly, by individuals like you. You can subscribe to support this and all other antenna programming, which includes publications delivered right to your doorstep. Subscribe to hear more at antenna.works backslash subscribe. Subscribe.